0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hi, it's John here. This is episode two of a special three-part series on checks and balance about critical race theory. Do go back and listen to episode one if you haven't already. But for the rest of this episode, I'm going to hand over to my colleague Tamara jilks
2: There was no Geneva Convention to protect the rights of the Aztec prisoners of war. Each year one, usually the best-looking and most courageous of the captives, was chosen for a particularly special purpose. He was tasked with impersonating the god Tezcatlipoca and was treated with appropriate honor, tutored by priests, given a life of luxury, and presented with four women dressed as goddesses to be his companions. When the month of worship to Tezcatlipoca came around, the prisoner was dressed in warrior finery, wed to his goddesses, and taken to the nearest temple to be sacrificed and have his heart cut out. 500 years or so later, and some parents in California were a little confused, to say the least, that part of the state's proposed ethnic studies curriculum included a prayer to Tezcatlipoca students would together chant the Inlakesh Affirmation in English or Spanish. Tescatlipoca, Tescatlipoca, Smoking Mirror, Self-Reflection. A few parents sued, and the prayers were removed, although the altered Ethics Studies curriculum is now in place. What happened here? Another example of nefarious critical race theory? Well-intentioned wokeness gone mad? or was all not quite as it seemed. I'm Tamara jugs and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. This is the second of a special three-part series in which I'll be investigating the fight over critical race theory. In episode one, I asked what is CRT and looked at how a graduate level academic theory became a rallying call of the right. The debate has become centered on public schools and what is being taught in them. But in this episode, I'm going to try to put the politics to one side. As a former teacher, I'm heading back to the classroom to talk to students, teachers, parents, and researchers to find out what is actually happening in schools. To what extent is race a social construct? What is the history of eugenics and federal housing discrimination? How can you counter racism in your own community? These are the questions asked in an ethnic studies course. To the anti-CRT brigade, ethnic studies is exactly what they are concerned about. To its defenders, the course is a vital part of educating today's kids about America. I'm going to spend the first part of this episode getting to the bottom of that. Ethnic studies programs are not new. In 1998, a school district in Tucson, Arizona introduced a Mexican American studies program. The course seemed to be effective. A University of Arizona study found that the program was associated with higher rates of high school graduation. Then the program got into trouble with Republicans. It was banned in 2010.
0: The vote came after a ruling that the program violates a controversial state law prohibiting the teaching of any class designed for a particular ethnic group or that, quote, promotes resentment toward a race or class of people.
2: But the ban was eventually determined unconstitutional
0: and overturned.
2: In some ways, this battle was a precursor to the current CRT debate. I'm going to get back to that in the next episode. A similar idea was implemented in California around the same time the Democrat-led state, and specifically San Francisco, is often at the center of progressive policymaking, for better or worse. Ethnic studies is no exception. Starting in the 2010 to 2011 school year, San Francisco School District piloted an ethnic studies program that continues to this day. The results were extremely promising, but when Christopher Rufo, the anti-CRT activist we met in episode one, and others point to the evils of CRT in public schools, they are pointing to programs like this. Many of the anti-CRT bans would threaten these courses in other states. So I decided to go to California to find out what was going on. Is it as bad as the critics say? I flew to San Francisco in December. My first visit was at Thurgood Marshall Academic High School. The illustrious Thurgood Marshall Academic High School, as one enthusiastic teacher, who you will meet later, called it. It was perched on a hill in Bayview, a historically black neighborhood in San Francisco, though now the student population was mostly Hispanic and Asian. After signing in with the main office, I had a few minutes before class began, so I turned my recorder on and explored the school grounds. It seemed like a fairly typical school in a mostly minority neighborhood. It was lunchtime. Students were scattered across the grounds, some playing American football in a field behind the school, others seated on the steps chatting, and a bunch walking the track. As the bell rang for class, that meant ethnic studies for me and about 30 high schoolers. I quickly found a spot on a couch in the back corner of the full classroom. The 30 teenagers were stuffed into every available seat, one at the teacher's desk, another on the couch beside me.
3: All right, welcome, welcome, welcome.
2: That's Rinaldo Delini, the teacher who described the high school as illustrious.
3: So, at the top of the ladder, you're going to explain which of these groups, in your mind, has the most power, right? We the on
2: the whiteboard, Mr. Delini has listed several identities. Woman, undocumented, wealthy, and others. The students have been asked to privately rank each of these identities according to the amount of power they have in society, and then justify their ranking.
3: Cynthia, tell me one of yours. Uh,
2: Cynthia ranked citizen near the top of the list.
3: Right, Cynthia says citizen because they don't have the threat of being deported. They also have opportunities to make money, right? Yes, so people who are undocumented and are navigating the immigration process, they do have hardships
2: that citizens don't experience. That's the reality. So far, I thought, pretty pretty harmless. I went over to the other side of town, where Lowell High School was also teaching ethnic studies. These high schoolers were mostly white and Asian, the result of Lowell's decades-long selective admissions policy, which has now been replaced. The previous class at Thurgood Marshall okay, seemed to have no white students. We're
4: gonna get started. Um, remember, if you're doing an infographic.
2: Can- Carolina Samayoa is the ethnic studies teacher at Lowell. Today, students are giving presentations on a topic of their choosing as part of their final grade. Okay,
4: let's give Kazelle uh, our
2: attention. Kazelle's video presentation was on colorism. It went up on YouTube afterwards. If you didn't already know what it is, it's basically an act of discrimination based on a person's skin color or shade. In five minutes, Cazelle explained colorism's links to slavery, its socioeconomic consequences, and how people today still buy whitening creams to try and lighten their skin. So what can we do to combat colorism? Well, first and most importantly, love yourself because you were born like this and you're beautiful just the way you are. You were never born to fit into society's mold of what beauty is because beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. And I say you're all already amazing just the way you are. The students were impressed. I have to admit, I was too. <laughs> <laughs> Ms. Samoyoa then put Kazelle's presentation into context.
5: Hey, you talk a lot about right, how people... Um,
4: right, but wrote down that they're lighter skin, right, to get jobs. That still happens today, right, with last names. Um, so you access jobs, things like that. Um, the wider your last name is, the more likely you are to get a job, things like that. Mm-hmm. This is true.
2: Right. A study so, out of we're we're the University down. of Chicago and MIT found that a resume with a white-sounding name was 50% more likely to get contacted for an interview than the exact same resume with a black-sounding name. These classes were certainly different from any I attended growing up, but I didn't see anything particularly nefarious. Instead, I walked away from these classrooms inspired by the amount of engagement I saw. I saw students learning to see the world from other perspectives and finding a voice to describe their own personal experiences. Back at Thurgood Marshall after class, I spoke with Mr. Delaney and his colleague, Nikhil Laud. Who help run the ethnic studies program?
1: Delaney, what what school do you teach ethnic studies at?
3: Oh, sorry, I teach at the illustrious Thurgood Marshall (laughs) Academic High School. (laughs) I love to hear him say (laughs) it.
2: The first time I interviewed Mr. Delaney over Zoom a month earlier to determine whether I should fly out for a visit, I must admit. I actually thought the name of the school was the illustrious Thurgood Marshall.
3: Love and respect is one of our tenets. Face to face,
2: he explained the point of the program. I
3: think that ethnic studies is a place where students see themselves, they see Mm -hmm. their history, and I think they also see their future. Hmm. Um, Because the course is designed Mm -hmm. to service them. My lessons are not the same every year. My lessons depend on my class. One year I had students who were Polynesian say, we never see any polystats. So I had to change my lessons to make sure that their voices were heard so they can see themselves, they can know themselves and love themselves. Mm -hmm.
2: Ethnic studies courses teach students to have a critical perspective on U.S. history. They ask students to examine who has power and why. They ask students to think about whose perspectives end up in history books and why. And they teach students the history of non-white racial groups. Critics claim that the ethnic studies programs teach children to hate their country and to hate white people. Mr. Delaney says that's not true.
3: I don't want my students leaving my class being like, I hate the world. That's not not what they want at all. That's that's not self-love.
2: So is CRT the legal theory being taught in ethnic studies? Mr. Laud says yes and no.
1: Is it critical race theory? We don't have a class on critical race theory. Are there elements of the underpinnings of critical race theory that inform kind of, I think the approach to ethnic studies? You know, I think it, it would be a little disingenuous to say that critical race theory and ethnic studies are are completely like separate. There is like a Venn diagram and there's elements in which Clearly, critical race theory has informed, like, the the field of ethnic studies.
2: This is controversial. Mr. Lott is saying that CRT, the legal theory, is being taught in schools. To the right, this is a deadly admission. To the left, this is untrue, and saying so is adding fuel to the anti-CRT fire. But let's stick to the facts. CRT, the legal theory, says that racism is not just individual, but it is embedded in institutions and systems. The presentations at Lowell touched on this, as did the discussion about power at Thurgood Marshall. There is certainly an overlap between some of what is being taught in classrooms and the ideas explored in CRT. Admitting that CRT is taught in schools is probably a risky strategy, but it's the reality.
1: California will now be the first state to make ethnic studies a graduation requirement for high school students. Just hours ago, Governor Gavin
2: Newsom signed AB 101 into law. Ethnic studies is spreading throughout the country. California became the first state in 2021 to pass a law that requires every student who will graduate in 2030 or after to take an ethnic studies class. California's program has faced its fair share of criticism from the left and the right. The first draft was accused of leaving out crucial groups and concepts. Some Jewish groups in particular felt it didn't focus enough on the Jewish experience or acknowledge the reality of anti-Semitism. The program was revised, but some want to return to the original. It may be required for all California high schoolers, but the contents are still up for debate. Many other states require that African American, Hispanic, or local indigenous history is taught in schools though pupils are not required to enroll. This might seem strange to someone who was in high school in America 20 years ago, but it makes sense today. Public schools are getting less white. In 2000, white pupils were 61% of the public school population. Now they represent only 46%. In California, non-white pupils are 78% of the public school population. Don't we all benefit from a full knowledge of America's exceptional history? But critics claim that ethnic studies programs go much further than this, and that what is actually happening in schools is far more sinister than what I caught on my recorder. To get a better understanding of that perspective, I spoke with Bonnie Kerrigan Snyder.
6: I think that my concern is the politicization of the classroom.
2: She has written a book on liberal indoctrination in schools called Undoctrinate, and she works for FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, an organization dedicated to free speech. She spends a lot of time speaking to parents, so I turned to her when I was seeking a better understanding of parents' concerns.
6: I think critical race theory is just one form that politicizing the classroom might take but it can take many forms. And so this is an issue I've cared about for a long time, mostly because when a view becomes promoted as being the correct view or the only view to hold, it suppresses dissent. It suppresses students' ability to really interrogate these ideas, to question them, or to look at ideas from multiple positions.
2: Snyder says that progressive educators are forcing children to believe in one world view, the progressive view. She says that a lot of this is wrapped up in cancel culture, which is trickling down from academia and social media into the public schools. I do
6: hear from some students that they, you know, are afraid at this very tender age of being canceled, you know, is this going to impact my college applications? Is this going to impact my ability to get a career? So that they are just choosing to self-censor.
2: She told me about some of the lessons that have concerned parents. There have been
6: some lessons that are perceived as being anti-white or anti-whiteness, and the concept of whiteness is one that has gained some attention.
2: She and others say that children are being forced to take on a worldview that is harmful. They are calling this worldview CRT, and many are hoping to ban it from classrooms. After speaking with Snyder, I decided that I should go and talk to concerned parents too. So I flew out to Arizona to meet with some moms near Phoenix. 10-year-old Mia Tang lives in a motel her parents manage. They recently immigrated to the US from China, and it's been tough. A scientist and engineer back home Mia's parents were forced to take medial jobs to make ends meet. At one point, they had to live in their car. Mia is fictional, a character in a children's novel called Front Desk by author Kelly Yang. It's a book that's been dragged into the CRT debate. My concerns with the book was that it was very, very, very focused on race. I met Amy Bean at a brunch place in Scottsdale, a city just to the northeast of Phoenix. There was still quite a lot of COVID around at the time, so I suggested we sit outside. Great for putting our minds at ease, but it does mean you'll hear some traffic noise on this recording. Every character is introduced by race. Every situation
4: is described by race. Race and economic status, those two things.
2: I wanted to go to Scottsdale because I had heard about some wild school board meetings there. Bean was one of the parents who spoke. Amy, you're up. All right. Well, I feel very underqualified. I don't have a fiery speech or anything to say tonight um, as far as that goes. Um, Bean felt lied to when the school told her CRT was not taught to her nine-year-old. To her, it was right there in the pages of Front Desk, a book her daughter had been assigned to read. She read me an email she'd written to the superintendent. Front Desk
4: specifically makes commentary on the interaction of race, Mexican, Asian, Black, and our systems and structures in our country, schools, businesses, law enforcement, and justice system. The book highlights perceived discrimination as inherent in our law enforcement and justice system, This is shown when Hank, a black man, is wrongly accused by white police officers and then states it is like that for all black people in America in some way or the other. It highlights perceived racial discrimination in schools as the principal is described as a powerful white lady who shows relief when she learns that Mia, a Chinese immigrant, can speak English. When Mia's dad speaks up and says that you can't judge people by the color of their skin because this is America, he is quickly corrected with the
2: statement, clearly you have no idea how this country really works. This is one of the sections she refers to, where Mia talks to Hank, an African-American resident of the hotel, who has just been interviewed by the police about a stolen car.
0: Why are you not more upset? I asked him. He shrugged. Guess I'm just used to it, he said.
2: This kind of thing happens to me all the time. It does? He nodded. To all black people in this country, in some way or the other. He dropped his head into his hands. I sat very still, thinking about what he said. I could hear the faint honking of cars, a couple laughing in the room next to us. I wanted to scream, stop, stop honking, stop laughing. How can it be business as usual when this was happening to people like Hank? Hank got up and went to wash his face. When he returned, he was holding a pack of Oreos. As he set the Oreos down onto his little table, I stared at the cookies and thought about the world of difference there was between the two colors. I've read front desk. And I do sympathize with some of Bean's points. This may not be CRT the legal theory, but it certainly plants a seed about racial inequality. If I were a parent, I'd want to know if those discussions were happening. But that doesn't mean those discussions shouldn't take place. Bean's concern about front desk is a great example of how the anti-CRT debate is playing out for real, away from the theatrics and the politics. Front Desk is a popular book, It was selected as a best book of the year by NPR, the Washington Post, and the New York Public Library. And Kelly Yang is a New York Times bestselling author. The book has also been banned for a time in school districts in parts of New York and Pennsylvania. Books like Front Desk are different from what most parents read when they were in fourth grade. For some, this is fantastic, a mark of progress. To the anti-CRT brigade, It's a dangerous example of radicalizing innocent kids and indoctrinating them against America. It is all about perspective. And then there's parents like Amy Bean, who was just looking for an open dialogue with her daughter's teachers around a book she had some, I think, legitimate issues with. But she was being drowned out by school board antics and political nonsense. At this point in the reporting, sometime in the spring, my head was spinning. Is CRT good? Is CRT bad? What is CRT? What is going on here? To try and get to some sort of truth, I needed to take out the emotion in politics and turn to the research. That's up next.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. First, I spoke to Patricia Bromley,
2: an education professor at Stanford University. She studies history textbooks around America. We can think of them as a kind of historical artifact that reflects the culture and society of the time they were written. In her latest project, She's been looking in detail at the most recent additions in California and Texas, two of the largest markets in the country. Are we seeing critical race theory in these textbooks?
5: No, we are not seeing critical race theory in these textbooks. It's very far from
2: that. Now, critical race theory by liberals is defined narrowly as the legal theory, but among conservatives, it's a much wider net. Are you seeing in textbooks Any mention that one race should be superior or inferior to another?
5: So it used to be the case that there were explicit narratives of white dominance and supremacy. I look longitudinally at textbooks. In the not too distant past, there were explicit narratives like that. We do not see those kinds of narratives about any race anymore, as explicitly as it used to be. There are still more subtle kinds of language that still do put the white experience at the center of the American historical narrative. It doesn't say, like,
2: is America inherently racist? And then students are expected to respond and say yes.
5: No, it's the opposite. In these mainstream textbooks, the larger goal is still mainly around stories of patriotism and Um, celebration of the country and celebrations of progress. There's lots about all the things that have
2: been built, all the roads, all the bridges. So the textbooks are still pretty traditional and even conservative. What about other aspects of the curriculum? I spoke to Jeremy Stern, a historian at the Fordham Institute, to learn more.
1: We reviewed all, any documents that a state offers that offer uh, overall substantive guidance to teachers. Anything that provides broad, general coverage for teachers in the state.
2: He conducts a a once-a-decade review of state standards, the rules that teachers must follow when teaching their subjects. When I was in the classroom, we used state standards to make sure we were teaching the material that would appear in state exams. I was evaluated by my bosses on whether my lessons stayed true to these standards. In 2010, Stern found that, with the exception of Texas, state standards tended to be left-leaning. But 10 years later...
1: By 2020, there had definitely been some improvement in ideological balance overall, nationally, which frankly surprised me.
2: The most recent review of state standards finds that, like textbooks, they are becoming more politically neutral over time. I asked him if the things that concerned the anti-CRT movement, encouraging negative views of America, saying white people should feel guilt or that the U.S. is fundamentally racist, were in state standards. He said that there might be some suggestions in that direction, or an individual teacher here and there might wander away from the state standards and say things that are controversial. But again, there was much more of this in 2010 than 2020. He was certain when I asked him if there was any attempt at homosexual grooming or encouragement to change one's gender, the latest obsession of Rufo and others in the anti-CRT movement. I'll get back to that later. Stern said absolutely not. Although he did say there was more effort to include LGBT history in 2020 than 10 years earlier. But what if teachers are secretly teaching kids to hate America and the rest? Of course, that is possible. But I have to tell you, when I was a teacher, we never had enough time to teach the basics. I can't imagine having the time and energy to create or teach a separate curriculum. Perhaps it is happening here and there but the evidence shows that this is hardly baked in. After I talked to Bonnie Kerrigan Snyder, the free speech advocate we heard from earlier, I followed up via email asking for evidence showing the harm of CRT. She tried her best, but eventually explained that most reports remain anecdotal at this point. Snyder has heard plenty of concerns from parents. The website of FIRE, the organization she works for, lists some examples. In 2017, a parent in North Carolina accused a teacher of asking white students to stand up in class and apologize for their privilege. We still do not know for sure if this happened. More recently, public schools in Buffalo, New York, found themselves in a controversy over their Black Lives Matter curriculum. Some say it is anti-white. Others say that the quotes are taken out of context. There are many more examples. In a school system with 50 million pupils and over 3 million teachers, we could talk about examples for days. Each side of the debate has their own set of anecdotes readily available. What we really need to know is whether these instances are widespread. Is CRT, as described by conservatives, happening systematically across the U.S.? As Snyder admits, for now, the evidence for this remains anecdotal. But anecdotes should not be considered on the same level as rigorous quantitative evidence. And Christopher Ruffo also couldn't give me proof that teaching so-called CRT is causing harm on a large scale. He placed the blame on left-leaning universities. Where can I find quantitative evidence of harm?
7: If you take that a lot of this stuff is new, um, if you take that the world of academic research is overwhelmingly left-leaning... The burden of proof is really on people who say that this is great and this is going to improve outcomes. So far, in my view, haven't been able to do it.
2: I decided to go and talk to one of those lefty academics Rufo mentioned, Thomas D, an economist at Stanford University. Dee is responsible for training Stanford's education students on how to use quantitative methods in their research. I know because I was one of his students. He and a couple of colleagues did a study of San Francisco's Ethnic Studies program. They found that it increased high school attendance by 6 to 7 percentage points, course credits earned by up to 15 points, and high school graduation by 16 to 19 percentage points. That's impressive. I thought he would be a good person to turn to and ask, what does the research say about CRT overall?
1: I'm uncomfortable labeling with the CRT label, because I I think it's so poorly defined, politically contorted. What you would call CRT seems to show a great deal of promise in realizing the academic potential of students and maybe even helping support their potential at an extraordinarily high level by promoting critical engagement with the material, not just consuming what we might think of as party-line propaganda, but rather developing the skills to interrogate that critically. And I think that's something we would want in a stable, well-functioning democracy.
2: Not everything is roses, of course. Like most things, Dee warns us that these programs must be done well for them to be effective.
1: But I think what we should worry about is rushing to scale with these types of innovations. I mean, one of the things I do worry about is, for example, in California, We're taking the ethnic studies curriculum to scale throughout all of our high schools over the next decade. And the governor literally quoted our research in San Francisco in authorizing that change. And my hope is the state will scale that effectively. My concern is they won't do the same kind of careful teacher training and support that San Francisco did. Years of teacher development. To deliver the curriculum well, I'm worried that won't happen at the state level and that we might be sending teachers into the classroom to have, you know, frankly, to manage difficult conversations with their students. And one could easily imagine that going sideways in some places.
2: But of course, Dee would say glowing things about teaching ethnic studies and similar programs in schools. He's one of those left leaning researchers Rufo warned us about. I asked him about that Is he ideologically compromised?
1: When I began the ethnic studies research, I 100% expected to find zero impact. I mean, a single course in ninth grade having these kinds of outsize effects seemed implausible. So I went into this thinking I would find the exact opposite. I don't know that I've ever been more surprised by a result in my career than this one. I've been making the case that test-based accountability in American schools was much more effective than people seem to think it was, specifically No Child Left Behind in the U.S. And also I did collaborative work on a controversial system of teacher evaluation in Washington, D.C. that fired persistently low-performing teachers. And our research, which, by the way, was based on the same research design we used for the ethnic studies work in San Francisco, found that that seemed to work quite well when persistently low-performing teachers were under a credible threat of dismissal. They either left or got better. So I think between those studies and this work, I've managed to offend the breadth of the political spectrum at some point. I don't know if that builds credibility, but I think I'm not alone among researchers in this space uh, in terms of just a real fealty and careful attention to the research design and the underlying theoretical constructs.
2: So what happened with the Aztec chanting I mentioned at the start of this episode? When you take a closer look, you realize that it was all probably overblown. I first learned about the chanting when I met with Christopher Rufo. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I then spoke with Jose Medina, a California state representative who backed the ethnic studies mandate, to find out how this was allowed to happen. I'm sure you're well aware that the California Uh, program has come up with some controversy with what's in the curriculum particularly the aztec chanting what happened there
8: i don't think that speaks in any way to the rest of i think you know a 300 page document i think this one was an issue of of separation of state and religion and it was agreed on that if it was a prayer it would be pulled out but the, the, the rest of the document is 299 pages, and I think it is a good document. And in one sense, I would say, you know, is taken away from the larger issue. You know, it'll get press, and it could get people excited. But the larger issue is how do we teach all Californian students, regardless of the color of their skin, the ethnic group that they belong to, to see themselves in their education?
2: At this point, I believe that the chanting was crazy, but I have to admit, I did not find the actual in-lakesh affirmation that had caused the uproar until after my interview with Representative Medina. And after reading how the curriculum explains it,
4: in-lakesh translates as you are my other me and relates to our habit of mind, empathy, and also compassion, interdependence, ecology, love, and mutual respect.
2: It seemed pretty harmless. When I dug further, it turns out that in this context, Tezcatlipoca is not the name of a god honored by human sacrifice, but represents self-reflection. The chant aims to help students think about who they are as people. It's a little hippy-dippy, but it's not as mad as it first appeared. I noticed that this was a pattern throughout my reporting. I would learn about something that sounded initially absurd— The kids are chanting to the Aztec gods of sacrifice, what? And upon further research, I would find that the claim was much more tame. The chant was akin to reciting a nursery rhyme or poem. It was all overblown. And in this case, I too fell for the hoopla. I spent the first few months exploring the CRT debate, earnestly trying to understand the anti-CRT point of view. And I think that they had many points worth exploring. We can all agree that some of the most extreme CRT points, as described by conservatives, should be denounced if and when they happen. White children should not be told that they are inherently evil, for example. And I don't agree with the type of introspection that requires white people to cry about their whiteness or their ancestor's sins. I can personally tell you that most people of color really don't want to witness that anyway. But as I dug deeper, two things kept popping up that I could not ignore. First, there was just no proof, no matter how many times I asked or looked for it, that CRT was harmfully sweeping through America's public schools. Second, why were the critics of CRT spreading this narrative that it was taking over schools like a vicious plague when there was so little evidence of its actual harm? Why were they so willing to tell this story And why were some supporting such illiberal actions, banning CRT, banning books, to defend this cause? I wondered about this for months, and then the anti-CRT movement's tactics began to take a turn. As it moved from a focus on race and racism onto gender and sexuality, things got a little clearer. Activists like Christopher Ruffo began to talk a lot more about cases in which public school teachers had been accused of horrific acts like pedophilia and rape. What had started out as a discussion about pedagogical differences was becoming something much more serious. It was calling into question the integrity of the entire public education system. And remember the speech from Christopher Rufo that we heard in the last episode?
7: To get universal school choice, you really need to operate from a premise of universal public school distrust. Because in order for people to take significant action, They have to feel like they have something at stake.
2: Rufo isn't shy about the warlike nature of his campaign. When we met, he told me that the term critical race theory is a gift.
7: And it's their own language that we've been able to really take and then use as a battering ram, a political battering ram, to break open the debate on, on these issues.
2: And this is a tweet of his from March 2021.
1: We have successfully frozen their brand, Critical Race Theory, into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that brand category.
2: I think that Rufo, with the help of others, is waging a war on public schools. But there are two things going on here. Rufo raised the alarm about CRT, and that got some people, many with legitimate points, concerned about what kids were being taught. And at the same time, the anti-CRT movement led by people like Rufo is discrediting schools and teachers in the hope of reallocating school funding away from public schools to other public, charter, private and religious schools. Why? Then there's this guy. Communism is encroaching on our country. He was also at the school board meeting in Scottsdale, Arizona, where Amy Bean, the mother concerned about the children's book front desk, spoke.
0: Communist school boards are now indoctrinating our children with transsexual propaganda and teaching them to be racist against white people by teaching racist Biden's critical racist theory.
2: His name is Ron Watkins. He was in Scottsdale promoting anti-CRT messaging and his campaign for Arizona's House of Representatives. Not a big deal, aside from his general wackiness, until you find out who he is. Watkins used to run 8chan, an anonymous online message board responsible for peddling sexism, racism, and anti-Semitism, along with QAnon conspiracy theories. Theories like the idea that the Democratic Party is run by a cabal of satanic pedophiles who use baby's blood for their rituals. He says that the 2020 election was stolen from Trump, and some think that Ron Watkins is Q himself, which Watkins denies. What are QAnon conspiracy theorists doing at a school board meeting? And why are people like this aligning themselves with the anti-CRT movement? Is this just a regular old battle of conservatives versus progressives over what we teach our children? Or are we witnessing an attempted takedown of public schooling as we know it? In the next episode, I'm going to get some answers.
0: School
7: choice is an essential component because parents can then see what their children are being taught. They can choose to uh, move their children to another school that may reflect their values better. I thought that I was just doing my
3: job, but I've come to realize that I've stepped into a national conversation.
6: So I think it's interesting that now people are finally recognizing that public education is under attack, but the public itself has been under attack.
8: The
7: people who have damaged public schools since 2020 in a really catastrophic way are not conservative activists. They're actually public school administrators and bureaucrats.
2: Part three will be out on Friday, July 22nd. You'll find it wherever you normally listen to this podcast. You can also go to our new webpage, economist.com slash checkspod, to hear this series and delve into the Checks and Balance archive. Thank you to Thurgood Marshall High School and Lowell High School for having me visit for this episode. And to Bonnie Kerrigan Snyder, Amy Bean, Patricia Bromley, Jeremy Stern, Thomas D and Jose Medina for speaking to me. This series was written and produced by me, Tamra Jokespor and Harriet Noble. Thank you to Weidong Lin for sound design and mixing, and Rachel Horwood for fact-checking. Amika Shortino-Nolan helped with the series, and John Prito is our editor. And thanks also to Daniela Raz, Margaret Kadifa, and Gadi Epstein for being our voice actors. If you've enjoyed this deep dive into critical race theory, you can read more of my work on the topic by becoming an Economist subscriber. Economist.com slash is the link to subscribe and is in the notes for this episode. And thank you very much for listening. Until next time.
5: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice
6: things.